Foreign Relations uh, Committee will come to order. Uh, we thank you for being here. Uh, there are some other things happening this morning. <laughs> and uh, so I, my guess is this may not be particularly well attended, uh, but I know that you know the record is useful for us in developing policy. We thank you both for being here. And Ben and I are pulled in multiple directions this morning, uh, in addition to the fact that there are other conflicts. But we, again, thank you so much for being here. We had a classified briefing earlier this week to walk through some of the things that cannot be discussed publicly. And so building on that and having you here today is, is going to be something very beneficial to all of us. Um, so the committee has now come to order. Um, we're going we're gonna to examine, as you all know, the transnational threat posed by ISIS. This is an important time to talk about ISIS and its global reach. In the last few weeks, we've all witnessed the disturbing violence ISIS is inspiring, enabling, and directing outside the Middle East. The attacks in London and Manchester, the violence against Coptic Christians in Egypt, the attempted seizure of, of a city in the Philippines. Here in the U.S., we faced our own ISIS-inspired attacks. A lot of these attacks have occurred as ISIS has lost increasing amounts of territory in Iraq and Syria. Uh, this reality does beg the question, uh, what more should be done and do our tactics need to evolve, particularly as it, as it relates to the operate, to, to re operation to retake Mosul near Zanin and Syrian opposition forces begin to enter Raqqa. You might expect the threat to diminish as ISIS loses its capital, but recent uh, events indicate that may not be the case. The wars in Iraq and Syria have served as a training ground for terrorists, and ISIS has a media operation unrivaled by its peers. Tens of thousands of foreigners have fought on behalf of ISIS, including thousands of Westerners. They can return home. They can also regroup and fight in another country. The affiliates are also holding territory and continuing to conduct operations despite increased counterterrorism pressure in places like Libya. The affiliates are, after all, the perpetrators of many of these attacks and threat to stability and a threat to stability in many parts of the world. So we welcome you today. We, we have challenging issues to deal with. We want to thank you for appearing before our committee. I look forward to your testimony, and I'll now turn to our distinguished ranking member, Ben Cardin. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for convening this hearing. You're correct. There's a lot going on today, including uh, the hearing in this building, or I guess connected building, uh, that's getting a lot of attention. Uh, and there is a, we have a major bill on the floor uh, dealing with Iran sanctions, on which you're looking at also sanctions against Russia. So there's a lot going on, but this hearing is extremely important, and I thank you for convening it. As we look at the impact of ISIS beyond just Iraq and Syria, uh, the recent attacks, as the chairman pointed out, in, in London, Manchester, Paris, Melbourne, Tehran, uh, is a reminder of uh, ISIS's reach is well beyond just the countries of uh, Syria and Iraq. The ongoing violence in Marawi uh, also points out uh, the, the danger of a growing uh, influence. Uh, yes, we've been successful in shrinking the self-proclaimed caliphate. That started with a strategy under the Obama administration, continuing under the Trump administration, as we've been able to take Mosul, and Raqqa is not far behind we see the shrinking of the caliphate. We also see the shrinking in the number of, uh, of fighters that uh, ISIL has uh, been able to accumulate. It had a high, as we believe, as high as 30,000. It could be now as low as 12,000. So we are uh, having a major impact. But there's been intensification of concerns globally, and we've seen that. Affiliate groups are popping up in Pakistan, Afghanistan, the Caucasus, West Africa, Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, the Philippines, and elsewhere. So we should have major, major concerns. And, of course, we have the lone wolf attacks, and we have the radicalization of individuals in many countries, uh, some claiming affiliation with ISIL. Whether they are or not, we don't know, but they are certainly motivated by ISIL's. So what should our strategy be? Yes, we need to utilize the military and intelligence and law enforcement. That's a very important part of it, and we have certainly put attention to that. But the U.S. leadership must go beyond that. First, we need to work with our partners so they understand how to distinguish between their 
uh, efforts to get after uh, uh, terrorists versus the civilian population. And too many of our strategic partners, they've been extremely careless, dangerous in the manner in which they've gone after these extremists, causing major resentment and loss of life within the civilian population. We must do better there. We must uh, use best practices of integrating cooperation, uh, especially with the intelligence uh, community. There's still too much falling uh, through the cracks. And we must have robust attention to good governance, human rights, anti-corruption, and development efforts. Otherwise, you create a void in which the extremist groups just come back. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, as we said on many hearings, it would be good to have the administration come forward and articulate their policy, because quite frankly, I haven't heard the, the president articulate a coherent policy in this area. We do need, uh, we do need to be concerned about the Trump administration uh, sol uh, moving their relationships with authoritative regimes that are repressive to peaceful opposition that has long-term costs to American security interests. The travel ban on Muslims obviously uh, affects our ability to deal with this issue and the FY18 budget submitted by the president, one in which both Democrats and Republicans have rejected, would also compromise our ability to deal with this. Let me just conclude on this. Earlier this week, I participated in the celebration of the 70th anniversary of the Marshall Plan. And the Marshall Plan was really a turning moment for the United States. It's where the United States picked engagement versus isolation within the framework of democracy, human rights, good governance, that we were going to help rebuild Europe for those countries that were interested in maintaining those values. And the end result, with a very modest investment, I believe it was $13 billion, we were able to form the transatlantic partnership, which has been so critically important to the United States national security interests. We need to figure out ways that we can build upon that model in order to deal with the challenges we have against ISIS. And I think we can learn from our two witnesses that are here, and I look forward to your testimony. Thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> we'll now turn to our witnesses. Our first witness is Dr. Lorenzo Vedino, director of George Washington University's program on extremism. Our second witness is Dr. Daniel Byman, senior associate dean of George, Georgetown's University, Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. We thank you both for being here. I think you all know you can we, we'd appreciate if you'd summarize your written comments in about five minutes, and then we'll have questions. Without uh, objection, your written testimony will be part of the record. And if you would just begin in the order introduced, again, with our appreciation for you being here. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, esteemed members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to speak before you today. As the Islamic State losing territory, as you said, we can predict some likely developments. In Iraq and Syria, it is likely to morph into a lethal insurgent force, still planning attacks in the region and here in the West. I think ISIS is also likely to undergo a geographic repositioning, becoming more decentralized. I can see two developments here. One, partially relocating to countries in the region, and I would highlight Tunisia and Turkey as two countries of particular concern. And I think, as you said, that ISIS will rely more on affiliates worldwide. Allow me to concentrate my, my remarks more on the dynamics on the West. I know Professor Byman will talk more about global dynamics. The first issue when it comes to the West is returning foreign fighters. Many of the 6,000, estimated 6,000 European and North American foreign fighters have already come back, and more will in the future. The first challenge is obviously detect, but the second equally severe challenge is determining what to do with them. Arresting them is the immediate, easy answer. The reality, however, is much more complicated. The example from the UK is very telling of the challenge. Uh, of the 400 British foreign fighters who are known to have returned back from Syria and Iraq, uh, only 54 have been convicted. There's a lot of reasons why that is, and it's a dynamic very common to all Western countries, uh, including to some degree the US. Uh, it's, it's mostly a legal challenge to prosecution. Uh, there's a lack of actionable uh, uh, evidence. Uh, we know of a lot of these people from an intelligence point of view, but we don't often have the evidence that can be used against them in a court of law. We also have to say that foreign fighters are indeed one of the main challenges, but if we look at it from a numbers perspective, not the main one. Uh, my center looked at the 51 attacks we have seen in the West uh, over the last three years. And we saw that only 18% of those attacks were carried out by returning foreign fighters. The vast majority were carried out by individuals who had little or no affiliation whatsoever to ISIS. Mm. If we look at these 51 attacks, we can also see an, another interesting pattern from an operational point of view, and I think it's telling us of what's, what's ahead. 
Only 8% of those attacks were carried out by individuals who are acting under direct orders from ISIS. Those are the big structured attacks like Paris and Brussels. There's a question on whether ISIS will be able to centrally plan sophisticated attacks in the future as it loses territory. 26% of the attacks were carried out by individuals who had no connections whatsoever to ISIS, but were only inspired by the ideology. 66% of the attacks were carried out by individuals who, were, who had some kind of connection to the Islamic State, but acted independently. Let me highlight here a phenomenon which I think we're going to see much more frequently in the future, which is that of virtual planners or virtual entrepreneurs. These are individuals who live in ISIS-controlled territory and use social media and encryption to connect with jihadist sympathizers worldwide, guide them through the planning and execution of attacks. We saw that dynamic play out here in Garland, Texas, and in many attacks in Europe. Looking ahead, it's clear that the caliphate, or it's likely that the caliphate uh, will disappear, but ISIS will endure and evolve. The so-called virtual caliphate, ISIS presence online, also ensures its future. In this environment, we also see a resurgent Al-Qaeda. As much as we focus on ISIS, we have to see that Al-Qaeda has gained ground in parts of the Middle East, and I think it's, uh, it's debatable what the relationship between the two groups will be. I think to, uh, talk of a potential, uh, if not merger, um, more peaceful coexistence and cooperation between the two, at least in some parts of the world, is not that unlikely. But what is clear also is that we face not necessarily just a group or a collection of groups, but rather an ideological movement. This movement is plagued by division and rivalries, which needs to be exploited. Ultimately, however, it has a clear vision and it's guided by a strong doctrine. ISIS is just the latest and arguably most successful incarnation of this, of this movement. But even its hypothetical demise, it's unlikely to cause the end of the global jihadist movement. And I think as we get to recommendations, I think that's why the ideological part is crucially important. We've been somewhat timid over the last few years in tackling the ideological appeal, not just of one specific group, but of jihadist ideology in general. I see some encouraging signs in some Middle Eastern countries where a lot of, country, a lot of our allies, even countries that had an ambiguous relationship with some, of, uh, some jihadist groups in the past, have taken a very proactive approach in, um, in confronting them and in confronting the ideology. And I think the U.S. should support these, these efforts and work with them. Uh, at the tactical level, of course, there are many things that can be done. Uh, I, I wrote some of them in my, my written testimony. It goes from preventing the flow of foreign fighters from coming back uh, to working more uh, in, in, in having countries having more resources uh, to challenge the issue of returning foreign fighters to developing sound CVE programs. Uh, I know my time is up, uh, so I want to thank you for the opportunity, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much. That was very, very, very helpful. Go ahead, sir. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of this distinguished committee, thank you for this opportunity to testify. In the past, the Islamic State focused on protecting its territory and trying to expand it. As it's been hit hard in the last two years, the growth in international terrorism is unfortunately somewhat predictable. This is a sign that the organization is under pressure, and we should expect continued attempts at terrorism as the organization seeks to stay relevant and as it tries to exercise a certain degree of revenge against those who have attacked it and those it blames for the loss of the caliphate. One bit of good news in all this horror is that attacks on the United States have been less than many people anticipated. Several factors explain this in my judgment. One is simply di distance. It's harder to get to the United States from Syria and vice versa, and that distance helps protect the United States. Another is the relatively small number of Americans who sympathize with the Islamic State or its ideology compared to many of our allies. A third is an American Muslim community that is generally well integrated and cooperates regularly with law enforcement. Many plots are disrupted because this community works closely with the FBI and police. The aggressive campaign abroad, I will single out the drone campaign, have also made it harder for the Islamic State to plot sophisticated attacks on the United States. And last has been aggressive security service action in the United States. The FBI at times catches individuals whose plans might have gone nowhere, but they also stop some potential attacks before they manifest. One thing that's often ignored is that the Islamic State poses a direct danger also to U.S. interests in the Middle East. The Islamic State has made a home in warring or ungoverned areas in the Middle East, exploiting conflict there. And the wars and associated terrorism 
decrease stability in the Middle East and harm U.S. interests there. The United States, unfortunately, is not fully prepared for the group's defeat or the loss of its territory in the caliphate. But the Islamic State is preparing for this already. It's quite publicly told its followers that it's preparing to go underground, and it calls up its efforts at the end of the last decade in Iraq, where in response to the success of the U.S.-led surge, it went underground, conducted a campaign of assassination and subversion, and was able to wage over time a successful insurgency and then come roaring back when the moment came. Our current allies in Iraq and Syria at the local level and the national level in Iraq are not prepared to govern. They are not prepared to conduct counterinsurgency operations on their own. And indeed, in the long term, it's very unclear who exactly these allies will be as the durability of the U.S. coalition in both countries is uncertain. Um, and as my colleague has pointed out, it is unclear if the United States or its allies are prepared for the likely return of many foreign fighters. President Trump has continued several po positive counterterrorism policies, but also undertaken several initiatives that risk aggravating the terrorism problem. The administration has improved relations with important allies like Saudi Arabia and continued and even accelerated the military campaign begun under President Obama, which is driving the Islamic State from its strongholds. However, President Trump's blanket embrace of the Saudi position in the Middle East will heighten sectarianism, which feeds the Islamic State. In addition, the administration's anti-Muslim rhetoric and policies that alienate some American Muslims increase the risk of radicalization and also discourage cooperation between these communities and police and intelligence services. The president's criticism of key allies in moments of crisis, such as his public criticism of London's mayor as that city grieved after a terrorist attack, miss opportunities to bring our allies closer together under U.S. leadership. One area where our country needs to make broader progress, and this crosses administrations, is institutionalization. Since 9-11, the executive branch has been the one executing counterterrorism policy and designing it, with some modification by the courts. Under President Bush and then President Obama, new and counter controversial counterterrorism instruments targeted killings, aggressive FBI sting operations, detention without trial. They became the center of U.S. counterterrorism with no congressional or little congressional input. Congress needs to participate in this policy process to ensure that U.S. counterterrorism is on a lasting footing. And last, the United States needs to improve public resilience when it comes to counterterrorism. It remains easy for a terrorist group to sow fear in the United States, and the current public expectation that there will be no terrorist attacks is unrealistic. There were significant attacks on U.S. forces around the world, U.S. civilians under President Reagan, and he is correctly seen as strong on counterterrorism. We should return to the recognition that some terrorism is likely and that a small attack will not damage American morale. Thank you for this opportunity. I was planning to go directly to Senator Cardin like I normally do. I just wanted to ask one question, and then I'll do so. <clears throat> the the recent trip then to Saudi Arabia where many of the Arab countries were there, 56, 58 of the leaders were there, was seen by many as a, as a pulling together. Um, you, you, you seem to think differently about that, and I'd love just to hear your thoughts. For the most part, sir, the trip was positive, so let me stress that. Uh, this was an ally that had come to question U.S. leadership in the region under President Obama, and it was good for President Trump to make a personal connection with Saudi leaders. But Saudi Arabia also heightened sectarianism in the region and in general has pushed an agenda that is not always positive for Americans. Mm -hmm. And we need to recognize that while Saudi Arabia is an important partner, it's not a country with whom we share many interests. And that distance is important as well, and we need to be critical. Instead, President Trump has seemed to embrace the Saudi position, such as the inter-Arab dispute with, with Qatar, Qatar, in a way that's, uh, in my view, counterproductive. Yeah, thank you for that. Senator Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, that's the point I want to focus on for a few more minutes but with both of our witnesses, if I might, because I am trying to figure out what, Mr. what the Trump administration's policy is in regards to uh, the countries in the Middle East. I didn't quite understand the comments in regards to Qatar coming from the administration with 10,000 American troops in Qatar. And the point about the Saudis and Americans sharing a strategic partnership, but in many areas we disagree on values, is also true of Qatar and true with almost every country in that region. So I'm not sure what is the most effective policy. Yes, 
the Saudis are important partners in our campaign against ISIS, but they also had the Wahhabist ideas, which are filtering into uh, some of the uh, extremist debates in the region. They've also been a source for funding of significant terrorist activities globally. So what should our policy be in regards to these countries, Saudi I put at the top of the list, in which we have strategic partnerships, they want to work with us, they generally prefer to work with the U.S. rather than any of the other major powers, uh, but we have some significant differences. How do we develop that type of policy that effectively is, is targeted against ISIS, but does not compromise American values or our partnerships with other countries in that region? Uh, unfortunately, sir, there's not going to be a magic solution. We're going to have to live with some contradiction. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a necessary ally. On a day-to-day -day level, they provide valuable intelligence, and they're part of the broader coalition against the Islamic State, as is Qatar, as is the United Arab Emirates. But Saudi Arabia in particular, but also other states, also fund an array of causes, preachers, who preach sectarianism, anti-Semitism, anti-Americanism, and in general, uh, make it easier for the Islamic State and others to recruit. Thing, we've actually made progress, if you look over the last 20 years, on important things like terrorism financing, where there is still a problem, but again, less than there used to be. I think steady pressure should continue, but as your question articulates, we need to recognize that there's going to be distance between the United States and our allies, that we should have differences with these countries, we should be criticizing them, we should be pressing them, we should be using what leverage we have, but at the same time, we cannot expect it to be a perfect relationship because our interests and values are so different. So in response, doctor, if you could, I agree with that response, and the Saudis do things that are against our interests. There's no question, but we have a strategic partnership that's important. I would make the same point about Qatar. They do things in financing terrorism that we disagree with strongly. And I could, I don't, necessarily agree with the Saudi decision, but I can understand the Saudis being so focused on Yemen and Iran's cooperation in Yemen that that influences their decision in regards to Qatar. But why would the United States reinforce that? It's not an easy, an easy issue. The, re the reality is that on the visit uh, that President Trump paid to Saudi Arabia, I think there was um, the idea that came out, at least in the West, was of a alliance, uh, a Sunni bloc uh, against extremism, and I think we interpreted most of that extremism being ISIS. Uh, in the region, I happened to be in the region that, that specific week I was in Saudi, it was most interpreted as being Iranian extremism, Iranian influence. Uh, um, as much as uh, some of those countries, Saudi included, are moving against ISIS, are moving also partially against the ideology. I think I've seen a remarkable change uh, in Saudi, not to mention in the UAE, uh, when it comes to uh, going after Wahhabi ideology and going after Islamist ideology in general, I think there are still some problematic issues there. Uh, Qatar is the country that to some degree does not play along on the two issues, at least from a Saudi uh, perspective. Uh, it still maintains a cozy relationship with Iran, still maintains uh, a more than cozy relationship with, uh, with a variety of Islamist groups uh, on the Sunni uh, side of things. Um, I think taking, though, a, a very strong position on this somewhat internal dynamic that is taking place in the Gulf, I think, is a bit too strong of a position. Uh, there are some agreements uh, uh, with all these countries, and indeed the strategic value of Qatar is undeniable from a U.S. perspective. Uh, so I think we should be very careful on how we intervene that, and to some degree a neutrality that leads to a recomposition of, uh, of that block, uh, I think would be the most useful uh, position there. For what it's worth, I agree with that. Um, Senator Young. Dr. Byman, I'd, I'd like to pick up on this line of questioning related to sectarianism and uh, U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. In your prepared remarks, you make a significant and noteworthy charge against the Saudi government, uh, indicating, quote, the Saudi government continues to fund an array of preachers and institutions that promulgate an extreme version of Islam, enabling the Islamic State to recruit and otherwise gain support, unquote. This issue recently came up 
uh, in some conversations uh, with the Saudi foreign minister. And the foreign minister said if we presented him with the evidence to support these assertions, he would take immediate steps to address it. Dr. Byman, can you present my office specific evidence, specific evidence that supports your assertion the Saudi government's funding preachers and institutions that enable ISIS recruitment and support? I would be happy to uh, give you an array of newspaper reports, uh, U.S. government reports, and so on. I, I will say, Senator, uh, under President Bush and then President Obama, this has been a fairly steady uh, dialogue where information has gone about individuals who are seen as, as dangerous. So I, I don't think the Saudi government is short on information. Well, I, I, I want to give the Saudi ambassador the courtesy of any sources you might have, so I'll pass those on. Um, moving on to uh, another issue. Uh, Dr. My Byman, in your prepared mark, remarks, you observed that the United States um, is less vulnerable than our allies on account of geography and a host of other factors which you identified to uh, terrorism. Um, one factor was uh, the American Muslim community and the strong relationship, or at least relatively stronger relationship, that they have in this country than in other countries. I'm wondering why that is, why, why it is in your uh, analysis that they have a stronger relationship, and whether you would agree that this cooperation between the American Muslim community and law enforcement has prevented terrorist attacks uh, in this country. The re relationship is strong, in my view, for a number of reasons. Uh, probably the most important is that uh, historic U.S. tradition of excellence is integrating different communities. Right? This is just something our country has excelled at for several hundred years. And so when people come here, they're quickly seen as Americans. And if I if may say just one anecdote, I was talking to a colleague who works with refugees. Yeah. And in Sweden, there was a Syrian refugee desperate to get to the United States. And Sweden, as a refugee, your first two years are paid for to learn Swedish. In the United States, we, we don't help that much. And the colleague was asking, why on earth would you want to come to the United States? And they said, well, in Sweden, my kids will never be Swedish. In America, they'll be American. And that's a tremendous difference right there. And add to that, sir, the economic success, the educational success of the American Muslim community and simply the cutting of ties that comes with distance, and this has been vital for counterterrorism success. So we want to remain one nation. Yes, sir. Under God, and, and uh, this is part of who we are, and, and to the extent that people who, who uh, subscribe to the Islamic faith here in the United States feel isolated or ostracized or, or, or like they're part of the other, that undermines that notion of, of one nation under God. Moreover, would you agree that uh, that also would undermine our, our law enforcement capabilities, our ability to deter future attacks? Yes, sir. Well, I think most people I confer with, most Hoosiers uh, from my state of Indiana, agree that the vast majority of Muslim Americans are, are, are patriots. They love this country every, every bit as much as, as we do. Would you agree that treating our fellow Americans who happen to be Muslim with equality and respect uh, through our words as well as our actions, uh, is one of the best ways to oppose ISIS and al-Qaeda's warped ideology and preserve our freedom uh, here in this country. Yes, sir. Okay. I yield back. Before turning, uh, turning it over, just my first interjection, we uh, understand you've done a body of work uh, uh, on extremism in our own country, and I think it'd be helpful if you just spend a moment talking about some of the things you're some of the teaching materials you're finding at cultural centers, some of the things you're seeing happen in our own nation to, uh, that we don't even sometimes realize is occurring to promote extremism here. Sure. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. What we do at the center is that we basically monitor the ISIS-related scene in the United States, the domestic scene, uh, which is, as Professor Byman was saying, smaller than in, uh, in most European countries. Bottom line, by the numbers, we basically have around 120 people who have been uh, arrested for ISIS-related activities since May 2014, when the first person was arrested. And according to the FBI, we have around 200, 250 people who traveled or attempted to travel to Syria and Iraq. Uh, what we do is basically we try to understand who these people are, uh, what motivates them, uh, what the demographics are. And uh, it's an extremely, first of all, very small number of people, extremely heterogeneous group of people. Uh, very odd for, uh, thing, for example, is that around 40% of them are converts. Um, 
they tend to be young, they tend to be mostly men, but with a rising number of females. Uh, what we see as a big difference uh, between uh, the United States and Europe is that most of these people tend to be unaffiliated. They do not belong to somewhat sophisticated recruiting pipelines uh, like most of the Europeans. Uh, they are scattered individuals here and there who tend to use the internet quite a bit to connect uh, uh, with groups in the Middle East, with groups of ISIS. Uh, the big difference is here. If you are an aspiring jihadist in Europe, uh, it's fairly easy for you to find somebody in the physical space uh, that will recruit you, that will open the gates of Syria, open the gates of ISIS to you. If you live in the United States, it's not impossible, but it's much more difficult. So these people tend to then go to the internet uh, uh, and try to make connections with like-minded individuals and with... Uh, recruiters, facilitators online, which obviously makes it much, much easier for the FBI to intervene because it's online that most of the cases start because the FBI observes these interactions and you have some people who are quite unsophisticated in how they reach out to, to what they think are ISIS facilitators. And that's how a lot of the, the sting operations, a lot of the, the arrests, uh, that's how they take place. Um, obviously, what we have seen, though, uh, sort of the flip side of this unsophisticated dynamic is that these individuals, because they find it difficult uh, to find gatekeepers to go to Syria, is that they try to carry out attacks domestically. Uh, I think Professor Biden was perfectly right in saying we have not seen the, the, the large attacks we have seen in most European countries, but by the number, we've actually seen quite a few attacks. In, uh, actually, in the last three years, we've seen 15 attacks in the United States. Now, granted, some of them are small, and carried out by individuals who have also mental issues, uh, where they, they do reference ISIS, they clearly are consumers of ISIS propaganda, but they also have some personal psychological issues. Uh, but other times they are uh, unquestionably 100% driven by jihadist ideology, and I think in some cases their attacks, uh, even though they're carried out independently, without any form of outside support, they are quite lethal. Let's think of the Orlando uh, shooting or the San Bernardino. Uh, shooting. So the internet plays a much bigger role here than physical networks uh, uh, play overseas. Uh, we do have here also returnees, individuals who are coming back. Uh, again, the, the, the numbers are much smaller than in most European countries, and I think the, uh, the laws here are better than in most European countries. The system is better prepared to deal with those individuals. Uh, what, we are, what we don't have here, though, it's a system of uh, prevention. Uh, of de-radicalization, what is known as CVE, uh, different incarnations of it. Uh, that's where the U.S. has been somewhat lacking. So on the repressive side, I think the system is quite equipped to deal with the threat. Uh, there's not a lot going on when it comes to the, the prevention part of it. Thank you very much. Senator Markley. Well, thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you both for your testimony. Uh, Dr. Vidino, you mentioned the ideological appeal of ISIS, and things that are sometimes mentioned is their, their interest in establishing a state as per, perhaps compared to Al-Qaeda. Um, if you fight and die, you go directly to heaven. But what specifically were you talking about? When you talk about the ideological appeal that, that uh, causes thousands of people to say, we want to be in this battle, we want to be part of ISIS, what are, what are the elements that are, are really driving this? Unfortunately, I don't have an easy answer for you. I think uh, going back to what I was saying just earlier about the heterogeneous profiles of the individuals who are attracted to this ideology, um, there's, a variety of there's a variety of profiles and different motivations guide each individual. We cannot think that what drives a PhD student in Chicago and a 14-year-old kid in, in rural Somalia to be attracted to the same ideology is the same thing. Obviously, it's very geographical, very geographic-specific, and it's very specific to, to individuals. Obviously, what uh, ISIS has done, so creating a territorial entity with some self-imposed religious value to it, uh, has been historical. And that's one of the main reasons that, have, that has uh, triggered an unprecedented wave of... Um, of recruits, of sympathizers to the cause. Uh, Al-Qaeda tried before. Al-Qaeda tried to create a territorial entity in a variety of places before, but ISIS was successful and was very good at also using um, the internet to, uh, to create viable propaganda for its cause. Uh, there are some very uh, deep geopolitical uh, 
factors that need to take it, be taken into consideration as to why people radicalize. So big issues uh, from uh, the, 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 some of the actions in some countries, occupation of some countries, bad governance and so on, uh, to very personal issues. I think when we look at why people radicalize, we have to look at politics, geopolitics, but we also have to look at psychology as to why in the people, okay. individual people act. I'm going, I'm going to cut you off there just because of the limited time I have. Sure. But I realize you could give me an hour or two on that, on that, on that topic. But I think it is important for us to wrestle with understanding those fundamental motivations as, as we are engaged in this. Uh, the, um, uh, the, this Saudi, back to the Saudi funding, uh, you, you, it seems like there's been a bit of a social contract, and maybe I'll just ask both of you to comment, in which Saudi Arabia, which was itself a Wahhabiist uh, state established, uh, and now ISIS is you know, almost a replicate of it, kind of driven by very similar motivations and this vision of the caliphate and, and a vision that perhaps Saudi Arabia is, is, didn't stay as pure to the cause as, as those individuals would, would have liked. But it seems like Saudi Arabia has funded uh, operations all over the world, uh, madrasas, that cultivate both hatred of the West and nurture violence. And uh, is that the case? I'll just ask both of you, is, is that the case? And, and uh, there's been reference to getting Saudi Arabia to do a little less of this. But do we fully appreciate the impact that that funding has caused in terms of the challenges we face while with terrorism in the world? I, I don't think we can overemphasize the role that Saudi Arabia has had over the last 40 years uh, in spreading a certain extremely intolerant interpretation of Islam worldwide, even to places like the Balkans or Southeast Asia, where traditionally a very tolerant brand of Islam uh, dominated. I think it, it is absolutely a big part of the problem. Uh, Indo I by think Southeast Asia, degree, Indonesia, the Philippines. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. It's changed the way parts of Islam locally uh, is lived. Trying to see the flip side, though, I would say that over the last few years, so again, I, we'll we cannot over, overemphasize that aspect. Uh, what I will say is that part of the Saudi leadership over the last two or three years uh, have somewhat understood part of the problem and are to some degree moving to end that. But there's very strong pushback from parts of society. So if 10 years ago I would have told you, yes, the Saudi state funds uh, a lot of activities, extremist and in some cases even terrorist, I think today is a bit of a different answer, a bit more nuanced. I would say there are parts that still do that and parts that push back. Uh, my last 20 seconds, Dr. Bynum, would you like to add anything to that? Uh, only that for Saudi Arabia, there's some ideology behind it, but it's also, they see it as a weapon against Iran and other rivals, where if they can get their ideas in front of people, then Iran's other interpretation of Islam will be diminished. And so that struggle back and forth with Iran has a lot of negative consequences for everyone else as well. Would you also, is it also part that by funding things outside of Saudi Arabia, they're saying to folks, and, but leave us alone inside Saudi Arabia? Uh, it's a way of, uh, yes, sir, it's a way of legitimizing the government and saying, you see, we're, we're doing good deeds. Look what we're doing abroad. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Paul. Dr. Byman. Do you think that um, any of Iran's desire to modernize their ballistic missile system is in relation to a competition with uh, Saudi Arabia or the Gulf states or in reaction to the armaments that they possess? Uh, to some degree, sir, yes. I think they have a number of motivations for modernizing their ballistic missile program, including their sense of threat from the United States, but also from the Gulf states. Do you think there is an arms race to a certain extent between the Gulf states and Iran that one side gets something, the other side thinks they have to go a little farther, that it goes back and forth? Uh, a little bit, sir, but the, the budgets aren't even. The Iranians are frankly rather broke uh, despite the uh, somewhat limited sanctions relief, and the Gulf states have a lot of money, so it's not a fair competition from their so point of view. I think that's a good point to make because I think the perceived uh, danger of Iran is such around here that we think, oh, my goodness, Iran is way ahead in the arms battle, and, in fact, they think they may need to catch up. So if we're interested in the perceptions of the two rivals in the Middle East, uh, the perception of Iran and the actuality is they got a lot less money and they feel the need to catch up. So I guess then that leads to the question of we have a pending sale of a large amount of weapons to Saudi Arabia. Do you think that uh, encourages or discourages Iran 
men from thinking they need to advance their ballistic missiles? I do think it encourages it, but frankly, sir, they have a lot of other reasons they want to do it, so I don't think the impact is that significant. Right. Uh, with regard to um, the war in Yemen, we uh, not too long ago had an armed raid in there, and our soldiers went into a small village, killed some al-Qaeda operatives, and unfortunately killed their, their wives and children as well. And uh, don't get me wrong, I don't blame our soldiers. They have a job to do, and they do what they're told to do. I do, frankly, though, blame the policymakers often, and I think they deserve uh, some rebuke or some discussion of what the policy is. Um, I guess my question is, do we create more terrorists than we kill when we go in and kill a handful of people in a village, in a remote village in Yemen? And to my understanding, I think the oral tradition of those deaths of the people in that village will spread throughout the community and throughout the land, and they'll remember it 100 years from now, long after you know we're gone. There'll still be people remembering that, and they'll still hate the Saudis for it. They'll hate us for it. They'll hate us for supplying the Saudis with the bombs that have been dropped on funeral possessions. I, I just think that when we're thinking about, you know, we're talking about who are we fighting, it's like we're fighting an ideology, and I mean, people just pop up. It's not like ISIS is like calling you on the phone and saying attack, but people are attracted by this ideology, but they're attracted by it because they feel helpless, under assault, and they feel like that we have all the weapons to destroy them anywhere, anytime. And so I guess the question is, you know, do we want more manned raids in Yemen? Do we want to send troops into Yemen? Do we want to take the port back? You know, there are people talking about a surge in Yemen. There are people talking about another surge in Afghanistan. Or is this the way we're going to end the, the you know, the, the war on us, the, the terrorist war of attacking us? Are we going to end it by, you know, ratcheting up more wars in Yemen or Af Afghanistan? I'll leave that question for both of you. Uh, Senator, I'll take a first uh, attempt. Uh, I would say that we're under assault both by groups and by an ideology. And the groups have to be attacked. And so that may be a drone campaign, that may be allies who arrest them, that may be counterinsurgency, but there does need to be some action against some of these groups uh, on, the, on the kinetic side, on the violent side. That doesn't solve the problem, but that is necessary. Um, however, that doesn't mean we have to go against every group in every country everywhere in the world. And I think one difficulty this country has had is actually been drawing limits. Uh, there are, we can say the Islamic State is in many, many countries, but it's only active in an anti-American sense in a few of those, and we need to recognize which are priorities. And the big thing, Senator, I would say is we need to improve our ability to help our allies, our programs to train them, to arm them, and improve their capability, because that's the lasting solution. Yeah, but I guess with the, with the al-Qaeda rebels in uh, Yemen, they're actually fighting against the Houthis. So, I mean, they're sort of ostensibly on our side, and uh, are we really making things better? Maybe they'd, you know, be killed in the battle with the Houthis. Maybe they'd decide in allying with uh, the Saudi side that they are more interested in taking back land from the, the Houthis. And I, I just think that ultimately that we do that. I think we end up getting more blowback from it than killing a handful of people in a remote village in Yemen. Um, I do, we do have to protect ourselves. We don't want them coming here. We have to stop them if they're plotting to attack us in an organized, sufficient way. But every rebel around the world, every time we kill one, we create 10 more. And so I would have to disagree with you that going into a remote village in Yemen and saying that that, I mean, that's the policy you have to decide. Is that a good idea? I guarantee there's another couple hundred people just like that in Yemen. Do you want 10 more raids like that? Do you want to send our Navy SEALs into Yemen? You think that's a good idea? I think that's a terrible idea. Senator Bucker. <coughs> Thank you very much. Um, uh, Dr. Vidino, uh, um, we're clearly making a lot of progress uh, in the field in Syria. Uh, we're, we're, we're closing in on Raqqa. Uh, there's a lot of kinetic uh, go, uh, activity going on that's a significant progress, about 60% of ISIS territory, and we're going to continue to make that progress uh, with a lot of brave soldiers fighting in a very important war. Um, but my biggest concern in this fight uh, to keep Americans safe uh, my big concern, and, and I want to broaden this question a little bit, because obviously we're talking about ISIS, but when I look at Boko Haram, when I look at Al-Qaeda, and their ability to inspire, their ability to recruit, uh, the tools that we have at our behest clearly are military tools. But, but that's not my bigger concern right now, uh, because what I worry about with this administration is the savage cuts that they're doing uh, to State Department activities, to USAID, and the th things that, that prevent communities from having soil fertile 
for, uh, for extremism. Uh, it is outrageous to me that you have an administration on one side of their mouths want to talk about being tough against ISIS and against terrorism. But probably what I would say, if you're looking at a toolbox, one of the most critical assets we have is the activities being done through diplomacy, through USAID, uh, and through other CVE efforts that are not about uh, 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 military, but CVE efforts that really focus on, uh, on, on countering violent extremism through uh, internet activities and through creating relationships and communities and stopping them from becoming fertile grounds. Could you comment on that for me for a moment? Uh, yes, Senator, and I, I agree with you. I think um, um, particularly in some parts of the world, it's crucially important to maintain a very strong diplomatic presence and to fund some activities on the ground in terms of uh, prevention of radicalization. Uh, I talked a lot about returning foreign fighters in my testimony. I think that's going to be one of the big issues. I'm thinking, for example, in North African countries, uh, we're going to see tens of thousands of people coming back. Uh, if there's no reintegration effort for these individuals, so some of them definitely need to be arrested. Um, and we need to provide support with intelligence uh, uh, and, and with resources in that effort. And then some of them need to be reintegrated. And again, these are countries, I'm thinking about Mali, Niger, uh, that have very, very limited resources that do need uh, our help. Uh, um, I know a bit the situation in Mali, where they're trying to reintegrate uh, uh, large numbers of people who are part uh, of some of the rebel groups linked to Al-Qaeda, some of them uh, um, in the conflict there, and they do not have the financial support to do that. These are individuals uh, uh, that are likely to go one way or the other in terms of uh, uh, joining potentially ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda affiliated groups. And I think if the US, uh, and not just the US, I think it's also uh, a burden for European countries and for some Gulf countries to provide financial support and do CVE there. And, and so I would like, and I'm gonna submit this question for the record, to which specific programs that are being uh, targeted for cuts that you think we should prioritize um, uh, in the Senate uh, to try to preserve? Because I, I listened to a national security expert uh, speak on an interview recently, and they talked about everything, their worries about the threats to American lives, and they talked about everything from pandemics uh, uh, to uh, terrorism, and they were focusing, though, not on what our military could accomplish, but what critical investment of resources. In the short time I have left, um, to both of the gentlemen before me, um, I, I think what the President is doing in terms of his rhetoric is making Americans less safe. The way he talks about Islam uh, uh, through his campaign, uh, and even right now, uh, the rhetoric he's using in, uh, uh, is making Americans less safe by not talking about this problem that, that creates more unity of action. And I want to be even more specific. The Muslim ban that he's been trying to push, I believe, has sent wrong signals and is making Americans less safe. And even his immigration policy here at home uh, which is, and I see this in myself in New Jersey, which is undermining uh, communication flows between communi now communities that are living in fear and now being pushed further in the shadows because they're afraid of deportation. It's undermining the communications between uh, communities that we need to have strong relationships with. And so could you please, in the, in the 15 seconds I have left, uh, comment <laughs> on, on, on that? And, and am I off base for that, that, uh, that opinion? The rhetoric is not helpful. That's in my six seconds that I've left. Uh, I'll agree and simply add, I, I worry tremendously about the aftermath of a terrorist attack in the United States, which will happen in the next three and a half years. That's just you know the laws of probability. And I worry that rather than bringing Americans together, uh, we'll be divided further. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Really, for both of you, I think it was 2003, President Bush made a major speech to the country following the 9-11 disaster that we had in our country. He talked about the axis of, e axis of evil being Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. Here we are 17 years later, or six, 15 years later. We know the story of Iraq, but we also know Iran is a provider of resources and encouragement for ISIS. What reach does North Korea have, if any, or what evidence do we know of that North Korea may in some way be involved with ISIS or be aiding and abetting ISIS or providing ISIS with material that they otherwise wouldn't get? 
as far as I know, there's no connection. I might be missing something, but no, no connection. Uh, that's my knowledge as well, that there's no connection. If in expanding ISIS's reach beyond where it is today in the Levant and the Maghrib, it would take something like an enabler, an enabler like, like, like uh, North Korea or somebody else to really get them beyond the Middle East. Is that not correct? Uh, sir, I would say that, um, as my colleague has pointed out, their, their ideology still has appeal to some people. And that enables them to make geographic leaps where it would be hard for them to do just with their people. So they've been able to reach out to Southeast Asia or parts of Africa, even though they don't have strong kind of physical and geographic connections. So I would look for areas that are relatively weakly governed where there might be sympathy for their ideology. Yes, and, and, and I would say this doesn't necessarily require any form of state support. I think it's the ability to penetrate uh, certain areas where governance is weak, where there's a lot of resentment. Uh, and also, I think, in some countries that are more stable. Uh, I think I fear a lot about countries in the Gulf, countries in Central Asia with relatively stable governments, uh, but nonetheless uh, strong support for the ideology and their ability to create uh, sort of clandestine networks there. I was somewhat surprised. In fact, I was probably... Somewhat is not the right word. Very surprised with the recent attack in, in Iraq by ISIS. Is that, is that any evidence of an expansion or a change in their mode of operation? You mean the one in Iran? In Iran. In Iran. Yeah. This is, uh, Iran has almost been enemy number one for this group, uh, frankly, ahead of the United States. It's a relatively hard target. Uh, they don't have sympathizers in Iran in a significant way. And the Iranian security services are brutal, but they're pretty competent. As, uh, so they've been trying to do attacks on Iranian targets elsewhere. And so this is, I think, actually their biggest success in the last year, frankly. If I might add, I think from a propaganda point of view, this helps them a lot. Uh, the fact that they had not been able to attack Iran, which is, as Professor Bano was saying, arguably ideologically enemy number one, uh, was a bit stained on their resume, if you will. And I think they will be promoting the fact that they were able to attack uh, Iran in the very heart of the Iranian regime. I think that's something that they're going to be using a lot in their propaganda. It, it appears that most of the attacks that we're seeing now are indiv individually carried out by one or two lone wolf-type terrorists in an isolated event using a motor vehicle or some type of terror like that. You refer to the next three and a half years. It's inevitable we probably will have an attack of some type in the United States. Do you, do you think the possibility of a bigger attack than an individual use of a, a lone wolf and a vehicle is something bigger than we might anticipate? Or do you think we might see what's going to happen in Europe now come to the United States? Uh, I, I'm hopeful that we won't see the scale and scope of attacks that we've seen in Europe in the United States. But uh, because of our relatively open gun laws, it's, you know, you can kill more people with a gun than a knife, and it's relatively easy for someone to do so. And so if you look at what happened in London, I just think of what if those people had had semi-automatic weapons and how, how much more the carnage would have been. So I worry about that. I also worry about uh, right-wing terrorism in the United States uh, that's been accelerating and enabled. So I do think these are all possibilities. Um, there's a degree of randomness with terrorism where sometimes an attack will kill two, but the same type of attack in another country will kill 50. Yeah. And so I think we have to recognize that, uh, even though it makes it hard to predict. Um, I think most of the, the attacks, as you correctly pointed out, have been carried out by one individual or a couple of individuals with no operational connections. Even some of those can be very lethal, uh, whether they use automatic weapons, as in the case of Orlando, or driving a truck, the case of uh, Nice in France, more than 80 people killed just by one guy with no affiliation driving a truck. Um, I think the big question is whether we're going to see more of the structured, sophisticated attacks, uh, which tend to be more, more lethal. Once ISIS loses its territory, will it be able to do so? I spoke about virtual planners, and I think that's something that enables them with very little investment uh, to carry out uh, a big return in terms of sophistication of attacks. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to the witnesses for this great testimony. I want to ask you some questions about who we should work with to defeat ISIS's global reach. Um, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dunford, re recently reappointed by President Trump, says that Russia is our chief nation-state adversary. President Trump says, though, if there's ways we can work together with Russia to defeat ISIS, we should. And I agree with President Trump on that. So, for example, if the United States had intel about some ISIS attack in Russia, I would hope that we would share that intel with Russia so that it could avoid it. 
talk to us about potential for cooperating with Russia and th you know, lessons, pieces of advice uh, to defeat ISIS? Uh, Senator, I, I strongly agree that we want to find allies where we can, even if, as in the case of Russia, we're opposed to them on a host of other issues. Uh, the, the tension comes from things like intelligence sharing, where obviously, in my view, if there were an attack, we'd of course want to pass on any warning we have to save innocent lives. But with Russia, we should expect that they will try to take any information we give them and extract the intelligence sources and methods mm -hmm. behind it. Mm -hmm. And that's true in various ways for a host of other countries around the world. They're just not quite as good as the Russians are in doing that. Um, we also need to recognize that one common form of assistance is U.S. training or technical support, especially signals intelligence. And when we give that, uh, countries around the world will also use it against their domestic opposition. And we're often on the side of the domestic opposition against the government, even as we're on the side of the government against terrorists. So I, I don't have, again, this kind of magical answer on how to work with these rather disturbing uh, allies, other than you know, we'll have to do things case by case and recognize the limits. Dr. Vidino? I completely agree. I think it's case by case, but I think the Russians are uh, in a position where they do hold a lot of important intelligence for our security because of their presence on the ground in Syria, because a lot of the foreign fighters, of the very experienced foreign fighters, come from Russia, from the Caucasus, from uh, the republics in Central Asia. The Russians know those dynamics very, very well. Uh, and I think we got to find a way with all the, the caveats that Professor Byman expressed in uh, exchanging that information. So even though Russia is an adversary in many ways, the defeat of ISIS is an important goal. And with caveats and being cautious, we should appropriately do what we can together to defeat ISIS. Let me ask about Iran. Um, the bombing in Tehran, the, the bombing of the Shia mosque in Kuwait uh, in 2015, should we treat Iran differently? They're a nation-state adversary, but if, if ISIS is targeting them, and if there are ways that we can help them defeat ISIS, shouldn't we, with similar caveats, try to help them avoid the loss of innocent lives, as was experienced earlier this week? I hope the U.S. position is that we are, we are strongly against many governments in the world, but not against their people. And attacks on innocent people, they're innocent regardless of nationality. And so... I do believe uh, the United States has at times openly, at times tacitly cooperated with Iran. Right after 9-11, the Bush administration cooperated with Iran against al-Qaeda. And uh, under Obama and now President Trump, Iran is playing a major role in fighting the Islamic State, especially in Iraq. And uh, there tacitly, there's information passed back and forth, often by the Iraqi government. And this is always tough for Americans, but to recognize that we can be strongly against a country for 10 reasons, and working with it on one, and we should still try to do both when possible. And it's, uh, you know, it's not ideal. Iran's a, a nasty country, but at times we have common interests. Dr. Vidino? Again, I agree, and I think we have a, uh, we have a precedent on that when it comes to another group, the Mujahideen Kalk, which tend to be, you know, they're anti-Iranian regime. Mm -hmm. To some degree, some would argue that they, they serve our interest, and I think with the, the, the way the United States has treated the group by designating them is the right one, because we are a terrorist group at the end of the day. Uh, and I think when it comes to those case-by-case -case tactical situations, I think there needs to be cooperation. At the same time, I'm extremely concerned uh, uh, about the influence that Iran has in uh, post-ISIS Iraq. Um, and I think as much the, the Iraqi government, and especially the special forces, have done a terrific job uh, in Mosul, but the disrupting impact that the Iranian and Iranian-sponsored militia have in that part of the country is of high, high concern uh, and needs to be tackled. So it's, it's obviously a very, very difficult dynamic there. And would you say it's somewhat analogous? I mean, you know, Russia and Iran are very different countries, but they're both adversaries. We're both opposed to them in many ways but they are both worried in their own way about ISIS. And if our goal is to defeat ISIS globally, we're going to have to work with other nations to do it. We can't just do that on our own, correct? I completely agree. But I think we, we have done that in the past. There's a tradition of doing that. We're talking about axis of evil. Uh, we used to share information and uh, work on some counterterrorism operations with Syria. Uh, even, you know, 10 years ago. So I think that's, uh, that's the nature of counterterrorism. You strike deals, maybe not that publicly sometimes, with, uh, with nasty regimes. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chair.
Thank you. And I, I, I know there was some discussion yesterday about having the resolution we had on, or the bill we have on the floor. We, uh, I think, cleared last night a condolence resolution relative to many of the things you talked about, which we said we would do. And I'm, I'm just I appreciate that. That's I'm very just important. checking to make sure that it cleared last night, but I think that it did. Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I wanted to ask you uh, all uh, both a question about the importance of conflict zones to the spread of extremist groups. We always have competing priorities um, in the Middle East, multiple competing priorities. In Syria, um, we have very little interest in a political settlement that allows for Bashar al-Assad to stay in power, and so that has caused us to continue to fuel the fire of that fight, waiting until the perfect set of circumstances align in which he can be removed from power. In Yemen, uh, we ultimately want a transitional government there that has the least amount of Iranian influence as possible, and so we feed the conflict there, hoping that there's a moment at which the Iranians walk away from the table. Um, just, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the importance of these continued local conflicts to the growth of groups like ISIS and how that should educate the decisions that we make. Should we be willing to set aside some of those competing priorities to create stable places and to end these conflicts? Uh, or uh, is it important to get the sort of transition government and the politics of a place right and that we should just let these things play out until the circumstances align with our interests in the region? Uh, Senator, I would say that's, that's a, a, a vital question to me because the Islamic State and many of these groups, they feed on war. So if you look at Syria, if you look at Yemen, if you look at Iraq, if you look at other countries, they didn't begin the conflicts there, but they became much stronger because of these conflicts. And it's hard to imagine many of the problems we have globally with the Islamic State if they did not have the base in Iraq and Syria and if they were not able to use that cause to recruit, to fundraise, and so on. And so we need stable regimes as a way of simply policing countries and arresting or killing terrorists. But we also need stability in order to decrease the ideological ferment that enables these groups to recruit. I agree. As difficult as it is, I think stability in some of these conflicts, even if it requires a certain degree of intervention, is crucial. Uh, letting them play out, first of all, has a terrible impact on, on human life. There's a moral imperative, to, as you know, controversial as that is, to intervene. Uh, these conflicts have a, have a tendency to be used. Uh, and abused by, um, by ISIS and other groups. They tend to sacralize what even some conflicts will start as purely ethnic or political. They tend to take religious undertones with time. Uh, thinking of Chechnya, for example. Uh, um, and I, I think the, it's really in case-by-case uh, -case basis, obviously, but generally speaking, it's not in our interest uh, to, to let them play out. As you know, it's, it's virtually impossible for any Republican or Democrat to get their heads wrapped around a future Syria with Bashar al-Assad or people close to him that butchered his own people continuing to have the reins of power there. But it's a fundamental question that we have to ask because the consequences of waiting until that perfect moment are perhaps uh, the result of that is the increased opportunity for both groups to expand. Back to this Saudi question that a number of people have raised. Um, uh, I, I think we all agree that this has to be a higher priority in our discussions with the Saudis, but maybe start with you, Dr. Byman. Tell us, um, tell us about the degree to which the Saudi government is able to control uh, the money that moves out of that country, um, uh, A, directly to groups that we don't like, but B, um, to the spread of this version of Islam that some of us worry is at the foundation of some of these extremist uh, groups. Um, how, how much of this is under the Saudi government's control? How much of it is not under their control? The Saudi government has made truly significant progress in the last 15 years in stopping direct aid from their citizens to radical groups. The 2016 State Department report made clear they still have a ways to go, but really spelled out a lot of the successes. Uh, so that's a little bit of good news. But that's different from the broader support for an array of extremist causes. And there, that is something that the regime has been very hesitant to try to stop, in part because it sees it as an instrument of its competition with Iran, in part a form of status, and in part because it's a form of domestic legitimacy. So this is something that it's almost untested because it hasn't tried to do a significant crackdown. At times, there'll be a quiet conversation 
which in Saudi Arabia goes quite far if it's between the regime and certain power centers, but it hasn't been anything systematic or comprehensive. Indeed, there has been change. I mentioned earlier in the way the Saudis uh, deal with the issue. If 10 years ago it would have been Saudi government uh, completely uh, funding uh, these efforts, now it's contested. You have particularly the new leadership uh, uh, quite aggressively moving in stopping certain flows of money, not just to groups uh, uh, that are violent, but to the ideology in general. There's an enormous pushback. That's the way the, the nature of the Saudi state is based on a compromise between the Saudi royal family and, and the Wahhabi clergy. And so breaking that, that deal, that agreement that exists, uh, undermines the whole the entire foundations of the country. Uh, it's a battle that the, the Saudi government is to some degree fighting, but when you have uh, organizations like the Muslim World League, the World Assembly of Muslim Youth, uh, these organizations that are partially uh, public, partially non-public, uh, uh, that send millions and millions uh, to a variety of extremist causes uh, worldwide, it's not that easy, particularly in a country where a lot of transactions are done on a cash basis. Uh, it's quite difficult to stop that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, this has been a great uh, hearing. We thank you both for your contributions. Um, we'll keep the record open until the close of business on Monday, and we understand you have other responsibilities, but to the extent you can answer uh, any additional written questions promptly, we'd appreciate it. Uh, again, thanks for your service uh, to our country and being here the way you've been today, and that's been, again, very, very informative. With that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you.